Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I had started this rumor around school that I really had a crush on a girl, and everyone was asking me, like, who is, who is she, who is she, what, what girl do you like, what girl do you like? And I was like, oh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you guys one day. And she, they, they kept asking, who is she? And then the girl was even asking, who is she, who's, who's the girl? And finally, after about a week of letting this rumor just grow and grow and grow, I said, you know what, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna tell you guys who the girl is. And everyone's like, oh my God. Wow, great. All right, let's go find out. I go here. I'll I'll go show you. I I know where she is right now. And we and we walk and the girl is in the group that's walking with me to find out who the girl is that I like. And we walk up to this entryway to the school that had this huge mirror. This huge mirror where kids can walk in and like see themselves and be like, "Okay, I'm dress code, what like whatever." And I walk up to that mirror, I take a few steps back, stand behind the girl that I like, the girl that's been following me, and I just look and I go, and I point her right at the mirror and I go, there she is, isn't she beautiful? And the, like there are, there are eighth grade girls crying from this gesture. They're like, oh my God, that's the sweetest thing I've ever seen. The girl that I did it to, immediately bursts into tears and runs in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. I am here with a man who is... Oh, I get such a great feeling from him all the time. You know the people that you meet where they walk into the room and the hair on the back of your neck stands up? Brad Williams is not that guy. <laughs> when Brad Williams walks in the room, your hair actually goes into place and it settles down nicely in whatever part of your body it is. Anyway, I'm going to introduce him. Hopefully, he will not slip into a diabetic coma as I go on with this intro, which is very long. Brad Williams has become one of the funniest, most in-demand comedians working today. A California native, Brad started doing stand-up at age 19 and has been touring ever since. He has appeared on numerous TV shows, including Legit with Jim Jeffries, Dave Attell's Comedy Underground, Sam and Cat Live at Gotham, The Tonight Show, Jimmy Kimmel Live, The Mind of Mencia, and Pit Boss. In addition to stand-up, Brad has become a dynamic on-air personality as well. His podcast about last night is a mainstay on the iTunes charts, always up there, kicking many podcast asses with guests like Melissa McCarthy. And it's just unbelievable what he's done uh, with his partner, Adam Ray, who I love. He is a regular on K-Rock's Kevin and Bean show in Los Angeles and has been a regular as well on the Adam Carolla podcast. If you've ever seen Brad's show, it's a very high-energy show, and late Robin Williams called him Prozac with a head. 
Brad's ability to make humorous observations on disability, relationships, sex, race, are winning over audiences and proving anyone can overcome their shortcomings. Williams was born with a chondroplasia, a type of dwarfism, and his condition plays a large part in the bits in both his stand-up comedy and television roles. He was a student at Sunny Hills High School in Fullerton, California, and after graduation attended the University of Southern California, but dropped out to pursue his acting and comedy career. He got a start by attending a Carlos Mencia live comedy show, and while he was there, in the crowd, Mencia made jokes about dwarfs. The people sitting close to Williams were scared to laugh. Mencia noticed this, then noticed Williams, and he asked Brad to join him on stage. Brad cracked a few jokes and impressed Mencia, and then he asked Williams to try to stand up and be his opening act on the road. Very unusual, everybody. Brad then was Mencia's opening act ever since, opening up shows on both the Mind the Mencia tour and the popular Punisher tour. Brad's memorable roles on the Mind of Mencia include playing a dwarf whore, Horf, the leader of an all-dwarf basketball team, joining Mencia at a Renaissance fair, and giving a speech about his hatred of podiums. Brad is frequently confused with Wee Man from Jackass because of their similar appearance, and from St. Patrick's Day 2008, Brad dressed as a leprechaun, made an appearance on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for Halloween in 2008, and dressed up as Chucky for a skit on Jimmy Kimmel Live. On July 31st, 2010, Brad appeared in an episode of Pit Boss on Animal Planet called Surprise, Surprise, and in April 2011, Brad released his first full-length comedy album called Coming Up Short. It is available on iTunes, Amazon, and his website. Williams currently hosts the About Last Night podcast with comedian actor Adam Ray. As I said before, Brad appeared on Kevin and Bean's April Foolishness comedy shows on several years alongside such comedians as Bob Saget, Jay Moore, Jim Jeffries, Bill Burr, Eddie Izzard, and he was always the only comedian to receive a standing ovation on those shows. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, a guy I've been very excited to have for a long time, and I'm glad I am, executive producer of his own stand-up specials, Brad Williams. Hi, Mr. Katz. <laughs> now, it's it's weird when you do when you do an intro like that. I feel like I should come on with a more booming godlike voice, but I guess this one will have to do. <laughs> what was that movie? I am God. Oh, oh, malice. Geez. Yeah, malice. Yeah, Alec yeah, yeah. Baldwin <laughs> in operating room thirty six. Wow, very cats. God, very cats doing impressions. Sorry. Well, hey, you're you're owed it because everyone does impressions of you, so you should be allowed to be do impressions of other people. Everyone. Uh, it's weird. Um, my podcast partner Adam Ray, uh, he's going in to pitch a. A TV show of his own today as we speak and he asked me for any advice and I started to give him some advice that you gave me and I told him that you gave it to me and he stopped me and said do it as Barry <laughs> <laughs> so you want to recite what you said to him yeah man okay <laughs> basically what I told him is that when you walk into that room oftentimes you feel that you're the first man that those people have seen that day <laughs> The mindset you have to have when pitching a television show is you have to walk in there imagining that Tom Hanks just was in there right before you and was pitching his own television show. So who the fuck are you, man? Why should they give you a television show over Tom Hanks? That's what you have to show them in that room, man. <laughs> so I did it as you, and uh, that was uh, he. He was inspired by that, and uh, and got and got a laugh about it. You're 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 one of. Uh, I've I've even told you that my girlfriend do, uh, does an impression of you. <laughs> I hope when she has clothes on. Uh, yes, because that would confuse the hell out of me. <laughs> that would make my penis very confused. Uh, You'd need some special colored pills. To yeah, get for that one. Absolutely. But yeah, uh, she she told me some advice that you. Uh, gave her in terms of her relationship with me when I when I was on stage in uh, Santa Barbara. She said I oh. gave her advice when yeah 
Yeah. Now that's a little odd because that can get dangerous. So you- it can. That tests the manager client relationship when the manager talks to the client's girlfriend and says, "Hey, this is this is how you keep my client happy." It's kind of interesting. I was when she led into it that way. I thought, "Oh God, what the hell? What did Barry say?" What did what happened? <laughs> now tell the audience what I said they were. Uh, well, once again, I'm going to do this as you. Uh, now you're on stage in Santa Barbara. Yeah, I, I, I'm on stage, and you come up to her, and you and you pretty much say, "I understand that Brad feels very strongly <laughs> for you, <laughs> and it takes a, a very special woman." To be with a stand-up comedian, <laughs> a woman that has to not be on the, the sidelines, but certainly in the wings and letting him do his thing <laughs> while he's performing and chasing dreams and being on the road and being away from you and not have never having a typical relationship. It takes a very special woman to be able to look at that situation and say, this is where I am comfortable, and this man is someone I'm going to be safe with. So I want to thank you for being the woman who you are, because I can tell you from the conversations I've had with Brand that he is extremely happy in his current situation. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> I, you know, part of me wants to laugh, and part of me wants to cry. <laughs> Well, it was it, it was a good speech, and 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 she when she told me this, um, also doing her impersonation of you, uh, <laughs> which is pretty much just as good. Uh, when 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 she did that, it's a fantastic impression. Yeah. I can't believe how great it is. I, she, I never hear you do it. Well, it, it's weird to do it to someone's face. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, like uh, I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, John Rudnitsky, he is the newest cast member of Saturday Night Live. He does a great Matthew McConaughey impression. Matthew McConaughey recently hosted Saturday Night Live, and uh, he was ready to do it. And Matthew came in with the prerequisite of no one is allowed to do a Matthew McConaughey impression, <laughs> which is kind of weird because it was a week after or two weeks after Donald Trump was flanked by two Trumps. He like he had Taron Killam and Daryl Hammond both doing Trump next to him, which uh, that's got to be intense. But um, so yeah, I, I don't do the impression too often for you. But she also told me that she's like it's it, it's it's interesting talking to Barry, and because you're because you're comfortable and extremely uncomfortable at the same time. And I go, <laughs> it was the stare, wasn't it? <laughs> And she said, "Yes, you have you you have this very intense stare that um, when you're not laughing and when you're when 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 you're just taking it all in, when you're just absorbing what the person is saying to you, uh, you have a very intense stare. Where if you don't know that about you, you think that you're upset or you're not entertained by what the person is saying. And it's uh, it, it's quite interesting to be." to be to to be a part of so if, if you're not ready for it that it could certainly uh could certainly catch you off guard <laughs> whenever we give pep talks to each other and whenever i give pep talks to other people i i always do it in your voice because it just sounds better people know my voice no they have no idea why the fuck i'm doing that <laughs> they go, what's happening did you suddenly did you suddenly get bell's palsy like like why are you talking like that and uh, it's like well it just feels better it, it, it feels better and i know that whenever i come into your office and we have our talks and uh, or whenever i get off the phone with you um i i i usually feel better i i usually feel uh uh stronger and that i can and that I can accomplish certain things. When people ask me, uh, when I tell them Barry Katz is my manager, and they say, well, uh, what's that like? I say, well, in the first year, and I essentially accomplished the things that you said in the intro, where, uh, yeah, first year, NBC pilot, one-hour special, and uh, my own radio show up in uh, up in San Francisco. Yeah, I'd say it's I'd say it's a good thing to have Barry Katz as a manager. Uh and 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 I say hour special because uh, there's there's a certain network that does half hour specials that uh, turned me down three times, three times for uh, for a half hour special. My favorite reason being that they said my comedy was not alternative enough. 
and my response was, I'm a fucking midget. <laughs> How much more alternative? Is that mainstream comedy now? Dwarfs telling jokes? Is that every every comedy club across the country has a has a four-foot bundle of joy on stage <laughs> spitting fire? Is that Four-foot four. Four-foot four, thank you. Don't shortchange yourself. <laughs> Never. Uh, so, that, so that was interesting. So the fact that I then got to do an hour special uh, on Showtime, uh, the same network that has shows like Dexter and Nurse Jackie and just uh, groundbreaking television programs. The fact that I, I I got to do an hour special with them was really great, and uh, it was a really cool experience and uh, a fun experience, and finally being able to show the world what I can do. And uh, that that part was... Because uh, like you said, when when someone tells you that you're not... When some executive says, you're funny, but you're not our type of funny, and we don't know if people are going to get you. And then, like you say, I go on stage at April Foolishness, and I get a standing ovation, and the great, the wonderful Jay Moore comes on stage and says, at the microphone, let's be honest, after Brad Williams were all playing for second place, which was his quote. Very rare, another thing for a comic to say yeah. and acknowledge that. Yeah, when you... When that happens, and then the network says, eh, we don't know. We, we, we don't know if you're funny. We don't know. You, you, you just want to grab them by the throat and be like, you fucking assholes. <laughs> Are you kidding me? But you just have to bide your time. And then uh, when I finally got the special, it ended up being the most watched special this year uh, on Showtime. And that's with someone that, that's beating out people that had TV shows that have tv shows are in movies are in television and uh just word spread and uh and i was with you when showtime told me they're like it got a it got a good rating the first time it aired but what it did that other that don't that other specials don't do is that it kept getting good ratings and they've aired it almost it seems like over 40 times since its debut in may it got higher ratings the yeah they're aired yeah it, it went up the more the more time and it's the same thing it's the same jokes you know it's, it's not like every hour it's a new episode like what what show what show if run on television with this exact same episode would get higher ratings i don't know Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Uh, and I want to share something with the audience, and Brad might be upset that I share this, but that's I think all right. it's really says something. So that weekend, there were six-hour specials that mm -hmm. were shot. Yes. They were Andrew Dice Clay. Yes. Jay Moore. Mm-hmm. Ben Glebe, who yes. hosts a show called Idiot Test, a great show. Yeah, on the, show. on the Game Show Network. Kirk Fox. Kirk Fox. Mm -hmm. And Brad Williams. Correct. Okay. I was there for all the shows because I, fortunately enough, I work with four of the those people. Yeah. I don't work with Dice, but I love Dice. Mm -hmm. There were four shows out of those five shows that completely sold out and turned away people that mm -hmm. I know of. Mm -hmm. Those four shows did not include Brad Williams' name on them. Mm -hmm. Brad Williams' show was half full. It was. 
And thanks to some great camera tricks by Scott Montoya, it looked like it was full, but it was half full. It was half full. So here we have an artist who, for some reason, the world didn't know how great he was. Mm -hmm. Ben Glebe, I don't know what social thing he did. It was the most stressful show for me of all of them because there were so many people trying to get in. Mm-hmm. Kirk Fox has no social networking presence. <laughs> has no uh, now he does because he's on Periscope and he has right. like 3 million people. Yeah. But back then he didn't and now he's starting on a show called Rush Hour which is exciting but but he didn't have anything. And his show was like a 6 o'clock show. Yeah. And it was really crowded. Yeah. Jay show, no problem. Jay Moore. Dice, Dice, no problem. problem. Brad, 300 people, (laughs) maybe. And yet, as the show was starting, I was thinking to myself, God, this is tough. Because when you have double the crowd, double the laughs, double the power. Yeah. But Brad Williams... It didn't bother him. It didn't matter if there were three people, 300 or Mm 3,000. This was his shot. This was his opportunity. And he gave everything he had. And he performed that special like there were 3,000 people there. And he crushed and got a full standing ovation. And the way this show was edited... It's a simple thing when you're producing it. You just bring the cameras in a little bit, and it looks like there's hundreds and hundreds more people. It looks like it's sold yeah. out. Yeah. You don't have to worry about it. And the sound coming from the theater was as great, if not greater, than any of those other four people that were on. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to point out is that not only does the guy have gone through adversity, but then he gets his first hour special, and for some <laughs> reason... Every special is packed except for his. <laughs> and he's on a prime, I think he's 8 o'clock on Friday or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was uh, Yeah, I was at the 10 o'clock. But yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. When I looked out in the audience, I was like, okay. Like, you know, it, it, it wasn't full. But I was just so happy to have a special. I was so happy to finally have the chance that's all that because that's all anyone really wants in this business is we all want a shot whatever that shot may be we want to we want our chance to be on stage and show people what we what what, what we can do that's all i wanted i just the reason why i tell that story is because so many people and i don't care what job you're in they go in it's like oh like some an actor going to audition ah jesus it's a cattle call fuck i'm never gonna get this Mm mm-hmm Oh, I'm writing my book. Well, there's so many people who write books. I'm never going to fucking get my book done. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going for this interview at the law firm, but fuck. You know, I didn't go to Harvard. I mean, how am I going to fucking get the job at this law firm when all these people... I wasn't the top of my class, whatever. Yeah. And so the point I'm trying to make is you went in, and it's like almost a punch in the gut because the artist, he's in the dressing room, he's getting ready... And then when he walks out, he sort of takes a peek right before he goes on. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, Jesus. <laughs> it could be devastating. He could get in his own head and say, oh, fuck. Well, I'll just do the best I can. This isn't meant to be. But not Brad Williams. No. Brad Williams no, went no, no. like it was oversold. Well, and the, the thing with that is, is maybe someone that hadn't dealt with things of that nature before would be would have been frazzled by that would have been spooked by that but that's par for the course for me i i understand that as as a little person i i i remember the first time uh i i really was conscious of people having lower expectations and me having to shatter them was uh i was seven years old uh my dad who is an avid golfer, uh, has played since he was four, took me to play nine holes at his club where he's a member. And this, and this was the first time that I, that I had ever been asked to do this. And this was a big moment to be with, to be with my dad. And when, 
when we teed off on the first tee, there was a crowd that formed around the tee box. This is not a tournament. This is not anything. No, but every golfer saw me at the time. If I'm seven, I'm about two foot eight. <laughs> you know, uh, saw me walk up with my clubs and said, "What the hell is what did." Did, did did Pete Williams go to the island to Dr. Moreau and and pick up a golfer? What the <laughs> hell? That's a reference that five people are laughing hysterically at. Anyway, um, and all these people surrounded, and I heard them whispering. As a seven-year-old, I heard adults going, "What the fuck? What really? Why has he got to bring his kid? Why is he gonna bring his kid? Like, look at him. He's gonna embarrass himself." And I teed off. And <laughs> and I hit the ball about 120 yards, which for a seven-year-old is pretty damn good. I don't care, seven-year-old, average-sized kid. How many times have you played golf practicing before that? Since I was four. But I but, but this is my first time playing a nine-hole court like with my dad. And I hit the ball about a, 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 about 120 yards, and this old guy that had been whispering the loudest yelled out, "Jamie Christmas!" <laughs> <laughs> And at that moment, I was like, ha, I did it. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, I didn't know what the word fuck was at the time, but I'm sure I thought it. Um, I'm a guy that when that when I was born and it was found out that I had dwarfism, uh, my parents' friends told my parents, you know, you should probably just put him up for adoption. His life is going to be too hard. His life is going to be awful, and you're and you're. It's going to break your heart to watch this kid grow up and struggle as much as, he can, as he's going to struggle, and he's not going to accomplish all these dreams that you have for your son. These are people who I still know today. My parents told me who they were. I know who these people are. They told my family to give me up for adoption. I still see them, and so when I see, so that's the kind of adversity that I've faced when. Literally, people never gave me a shot from right when I was born. They said, ah, let's discard that one. Try again. No. No. Never. I'm, ne- I'm never going to let you be right. I'm never going to let someone who expects lower expectations of me be right. I'm never going to let that happen. So when I walk on stage and the house is half full... You, you you think a house that's half full is going to stop me from doing well on my first hour special, my one hour special for premium cable, my introduction to the world for a lot of people? Fuck you. No, that's never going to happen. I'm not going to let you do that to me. So that's So that's why I didn't get discouraged, and that's why I'll put on a hell of a show if... 20 people show up to my show i'll put on a hell of a show if 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 300 people show up or i'll put on a hell of a show when i do the wilbur theater in boston in march and there's and there's going to be 1200 people there i'm going to do a hell of a show for them too because i'm not going to let anyone that doesn't think i can do it be right do you ever feel like a family get together just hey uncle sid how you doing listen could you come here for a second i want to talk to you about something yeah i there were the people who told my family that they should give me up for adoption like i said i know who they are i gave them tickets to my hour special for that reason i wanted to look them in the eye while i was doing it while I was on stage, while I was doing my one-hour comedy special, which no other little person has ever done. No, and if I'm wrong, tweet me the names. I know there's Tanya Lee Davis. I know there's Nick Novicki. I, I, I know there's great, talented, wonderful uh, dwarf comics, but they've never done an hour special. So I want to look into your eyes when you realize how wrong you were. When you said to my mom and dad, try again, that's not the one you want. I want to see the look on your face. I, I, I invited them for that purpose. And so you see them after the show. Yeah. They come in. They don't know that you know. Mm-hmm. So do you feel anything when you look in their eyes? Like yeah. from them? Yeah. What do you feel? 
What do you think they're thinking? What? What is? They they don't remember that they said those things. How do you know? Uh, not at, not at the time. They're not thinking about it at, at at the time. I've I've had my I've had my uh, Godfather moment where I grab them and go, I know it was you. I know what you said. I know what you thought. And what did they say? They said, "Well, Brad, you gotta understand. We didn't know. We didn't know what dwarfism was. We had no idea." And I, and I, and I go, "No, I'm not. I'm not mad at you. I'm thanking you. I'm th- I'm thanking you for lighting that fire under my ass from day one to make me look at life and never let anyone like you be correct about me. So thank you for that. Wow. Yeah. All right. So." <laughs> Share with our audience your beginnings, what kind of life you had growing up, your family, and what they were like before you were born. What yeah. they, what was, you know, what the whole family was like, and yeah, what yeah, yeah. happened as you were growing up, and your relationship with your father and your mm-hmm. mom. Uh, well, I'm the only dwarf in the family, which is why you know people may have had those misconceptions about me when I was born in terms of what dwarfism is. Um, so yeah, mom and dad. Uh, dad's a lawyer. Uh, mother uh, was a banker until I reached about the age of three or four. Then decided to raise us full time. Me, me and my sister. I have a sister who's 15 months older. Uh, so uh, just two, just two children. We are, we are the Cleaver family. We, you know, we grew up with mom, dad. Dad went to work. Mom stayed home with the kids. Sister, brother, and dog. Like. We were that we we were that family upper middle class household, uh, but I was always kind of the black sheep of the family. I was the weird one, which I didn't mind. I don't care. It was, uh, it, 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 but it, it was a great place to grow up in because my dad never. Some people, and I know, and I've seen this happen many times. Some people, when they have a child who's different, they have a tendency to shelter them. They have a tendency of putting a bubble around them and protecting them and uh, hiding them away from everyone else. Either shame, caution, fear, whatever emotion drives it. For my dad, he knew that that wasn't that if you that if I were to be successful, that couldn't happen. He couldn't hide me away. He had to expose me to the world at a very young age. So I remember him sitting me down and telling me, like, "Hey, you're." Not like everybody else. People are going to make fun of you. And you have to think of how you're going to react to that. What 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 are you going to do when someone makes fun of you? And I was and I was that was a kid. I was 2 3 4 years old. And I was like, "Well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell an adult." And he's like, "No, you're not. You're not going to tell an adult. You're going to come back. You're going to fight. You are going if someone insults you, you insult them worse. You make them cry. You make them regret ever saying that thing to you." And he's telling a, a essentially slightly bigger than a toddler this. So your dad, if you had to summarize what your dad's mission statement was to yeah. you, mm-hmm. what would you say in terms of preparing you for life? Basically, my dad's philosophy is that he was going to prepare me for the world that is and not the world that should be. In the world that should be, I should never be made fun of. In the world it should be, no one should ever be assaulted. In, in the world it should be, what happened in Paris should never happen. But we live in the world that is, where all those things do happen, where all those things do unfortunately occur. So who do you want to be? Do you want to be the person that has never faced adversity before in your life? Do you want to be the person that doesn't know what it's like to go through struggle? Because struggle will happen. Life will hit you. Life is undefeated. Life life will always come at you with something. And if you've never had struggle, you won't you're gonna get punched in the face for the first time and not know what the hell to do. But if you've gone through struggle, if you've gone through adversity, then you always know how to react to it. You you, you know to stay calm and you know what steps you need to take to overcome it. So that's how my dad raised me. So by the time I got to school, and kids thought they thought they were going to make fun of me and thought they were going to bully me and thought, well, look at him. He's easy pickings. Uh, no, I made every kid regret that through comebacks, through uh, th- through just uh, insulting them, through sometimes just downright embarrassing them in front of the entire class. It was made very apparent very quickly 
don't mess with Brad. Now, how many times did you get sent down to the principal's office? First day at school. That was fun. <laughs> well, well, the best part is that whenever I would get sent to the office or whenever a teacher would talk to me, it, but see, here's the thing. I don't, I don't, I don't want to get off the impression I was a bad kid. I had great grades. I studied hard. I was uh, nice to and kind to everyone, but the second someone insulted me, no, game on, gloves on, shotgun loaded, cocked, you're, you're not getting away. First day of school, I got sent uh, to the principal's office because a kid uh, ran out of line, walked up to me and screamed in front of the audience, ha ha, you're little. And I, re- and I re- retaliated. I said, ha ha, your mom doesn't live with your dad anymore. <laughs> and the kid, and it's California, so you got a 50-50 shot of getting that right. <laughs> and uh, I got that right. And the kid started crying. And, and then the kid go- goes to the teacher and said, he made me cry. And then I got sent to the principal's office. So then the principal does something that strikes fear in every child when it, when whenever they're in whenever they've messed up whenever they're in trouble the worst thing anyone could ever say to that child is i'm calling your father and the principal says i'm calling your father that had no effect on me i was smiling i was like do it great i'm gonna tell him later so you might as well tell him now this is exciting he didn't believe me he he, he thought i was trying to try to do like reverse psychology on him it's like i'm six i don't know what reverse psychology is uh so he called up my dad and he told him what happened and my dad's response was did he start it or did he finish it the principal says well he finished it and my dad said on the speakerphone he's like well problem at your school isn't my son problem at your school is that kid's a pussy click hangs up <laughs> and now i'm dancing around the office like yeah like i was so excited and so happy and, and the principal knew he had nothing on me so I, I, I went back to class um i probably got sent up to the principal's office three times within the first two years of school but uh, I was taught very uh, I, I, like it, it was it was word spread that you don't do anything and the best part is that the older kids would start to back me so if you were a first grader and you made fun of me great I got two fifth graders that are, that are gonna come beat you up like they they're like well Brad well Brad's not gonna fight me you're right I'm not they are and uh, that that happened that happened on multiple occasions where kids stuck up for me and uh, and uh, kind of fought my battles for me, which I was fine with. I, I was perfectly all right with that. As you went into high school, mm-hmm. tell us about your feelings going to high school. Whereas you know you go into high school and look. My son goes into sixth grade. In my son's school, they have six through twelve in. Wow. Uh, in the same school, so he's going to school with twelve graders yeah. and whatever. And he says he wants to cut his hair before he goes. He goes to get his hair cut. He says, "Let me. I just want to do what I want to do, Dad." And he comes out, and his hair is like Skrillex. He's got one side of his head buzz cut. The mm-hmm. other half of his head is is long down past his shoulders. Yeah. And I said to him, "I said, you know that you could." get bullied because of this he said i'm that i'm gonna kill him with kindness i'm gonna kill him with comedy and i would go back and forth with him in the car doing the insults like you and your dad talked about yeah and they did and he tells me that i said do people bully you do they say things he says yeah but i just come right back at him i don't let it bother me i come back with a joke love it he said i want to be an original i want to be I don't want to be like everybody else. And I Love it. thought that was really interesting because I didn't, I guess it's part of the culture that you grow up in or however, mm-hmm. but you go into high school and high school is very clicky Yep. and guys start going out with girls. Yep. Are you dating any girls in high school or do high school girls just, they can't get over it and they're just not ready to go out with a little person? Correct. The second one. Uh, Did you ask anybody out? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And they all said no. Yeah. There was a, this was, and I and I did, because my philosophy wasn't, okay, so I, I, I heard no by a couple of girls, so my philosophy was never, I, I need to stop. My philosophy was, I need to go bigger. <laughs> What's the nicest way a girl said no to you, and the meanest way a girl said no to you? Okay. Nicest way, like, I, I would get a lot of, no, you're, you're, you're a good friend. 
and I and I don't want to ruin the friendship, and I don't want to ruin that. And I thought, all right, fine. So you had a lot of girls in high school that were your friends. Tons. Yeah. Oh, okay. So and 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 I would remain friends with them. The uh, now were you the only kid in your high school with a disability? No. Uh, there was actually three little people at my school. There was uh, there was a bro- there was a brother and sister. And uh, a brother and sister, yeah. is that unusual? Uh, no, not 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 entirely. So they they went to my high school and were at there at the same time. The only thing was that everyone expected me to then date the female. Everyone's like, "Well, that's yours." You're like that's that's your girl. The awkward part is when they tried to get the brother and sister to date because they didn't know that they were brother and sister. They'd be like, James, look at over there. Yeah, that's a hottie. And he's like, yeah, that's my sister. I've uh, grown up with her my entire life. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why I, I actually didn't date the female little person. It's not that I didn't find her attractive. It's that I had grown up with her my entire life. I had known her my entire life. So uh, that was kind of, I, I couldn't get past that. So you um, went bigger. Yeah. And by bigger, I mean more grandiose gestures. To show them, like, well, if you said no, what if I do this? Like, the there was one time where I had started this rumor around school that I really had a crush on a girl, and everyone was asking me, like, who is who is she? Who is she? What what girl do you like? What girl do you like? And I was like, oh, I'll tell I'll tell you guys one day. And she they they kept asking, who is she? And then the girl was even asking, who is she? Who's who's the girl? And Finally, after about a week of letting this rumor just grow and grow and grow, I said, you know what? I'm going to tell you guys who the girl is. And everyone's like, oh, my God. Wow. Great. All right. Let's go find out. I go, here, I'll, I'll go show you. I, I know where she is right now. And we, and we walk. And the girl is in the group that's walking with me to find out who the girl is that I like. And we walk up to this entryway to the school that had this huge mirror this huge mirror where kids can walk in and like see themselves and be like, okay, I'm dress code, whatever, like whatever. And I walk up to that mirror. I take a few steps back, stand behind the girl that I like the girl has been following me. And I just look and I go and I point her right at the mirror and I go, there she is. Isn't she beautiful? And the, like there are, there are eighth grade girls crying from this gesture. They're like, oh my God, that's the sweetest thing I've ever seen. The girl that I did it to immediately bursts into tears and runs in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so you set yourself up for a possible failure. Yes, and I failed huge. And she runs in the bathroom. What do you feel when she does that? Oh, that someone just drop kicked my heart. Someone just, you know, said, you're not going to be needing this anymore, and punt. <laughs> like, <laughs> So the next time you see her, what, mm-hmm. what does she say to you? She just says, I'm sorry, I can't date you. And I go, okay, that's fine. In my head, every time I got rejected, I used it as fuel of one day you're going to regret this decision. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. All right, so tell our audience the first time you ask. So tell me the first time you asked an average-sized girl out. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and how many times you'd been rejected up to that point and what happened. Oh, man. When she said yes. Um, okay. The first time I asked a average size woman out because I dated other dwarf girls from ages 16 to 21. I dated pretty much exclusively dwarf women. Is that an easier play? Like when yeah. you ask a, a, a woman who's a dwarf out, she always says yes? Yeah. <laughs> Has any dwarf or little person mm-hmm. ever said no when you asked them no? Out? Zero. So you're Never. batting 100% yeah. with little people. Yes. And with average people sized, you're zero. batting 0%. Kind of, kind of a mind fuck, don't you think, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> You're perfect one day, you know. Uh, so, I I I dated a, a, a lot a lot of little people. I went to six proms, Barry. Six. All right. So the first time you lose your virginity, how mm-hmm. old are you? Twenty. Twenty. So that's yeah. after you quit USC yeah. and you decide to do comedy. Yes. So you but you're dating these little people through high school, but they're not giving up the action. Yes. Yes. And do you know why? Uh, it, it, it was a combination of them and me. I, I, I want it to be something uh, special. And so girls were trying to fuck you and you were saying no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there were some times when I was, when I thought, all right, here it is. This is the one. And then, and then they said no. And then that they were waiting for something special, whatever. So the first woman you lost your virginity to at mm-hmm. 20, was she average size or little person? L- little person, yes. Got it. Yes. And why did you choose her? Um, why did I choose? Uh, you know, we it, it was we had a convention, and yes, there's dwarf conventions, and it was in San Francisco, and that was uh, uh, where she's from, and uh, we just kind of got along well. And uh, st- and we we had a bunch of mutual friends and we got along great and she was really sweet and uh, we we started dating based on that. But uh, she was very religious though and didn't want to have sex uh, until we were until we were married. Uh, I had never had sex before, so I'm like, great, yeah, I'll wait it out. What's another few? <laughs> you know. <laughs> But then one time she calls me up, and she lives in San Francisco, and she says, I'm ready. I feel like we've reached the point in our relationship where it's good. And I go, all right. And I I get in my car, and I drive up, essentially. So you're driving six, seven hours knowing yes. you're going to get some action. Yes. What are you feeling inside? Oh, extreme excitement. It's like, I'm going to do this thing. like, And that's like... Can you imagine? Because a lot of times losing your virginity is a spontaneous decision in the moment. This was just like, and to know how powerful sex is, I got the all clear at about noon. At 10 p.m., I was in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we're, uh, we're at her place. We're in, we're in the bedroom. Her whole thing was the, her parents were gone for that weekend. And then uh, things start things start progressing, and uh, it gets to the point where all right, we're gonna do this thing, and then she stops, and she holds both of my hands in hers, and she says, "I need you to pray." What? <laughs> she says, "I need I I need you to pray to God right now, and ask for His forgiveness for what we're about to do." Granted, I'm a virgin with a raging erection right now. <laughs> and I say raging because it was upset because it had never been used. <laughs> so, and, but sure enough, as we're both nude, we get down on the floor on our knees, not in the hot way. And uh, I have to pray to God in that moment <laughs> and say, forgive us for what we're about to do. We, we, we do this not for uh, sins of the flesh, but because we do it to honor the love that you have that you have provided for us we feel that I, I we feel that you have you have let us find each other and then and now we found each other so we're doing this not to spite you but to honor you and that that is what that is what I came up with in that moment 
uh, something along those lines. And then, uh, and, and, and then we, but then now see if that happened today, there's no way I'm keeping that erection. <laughs> no way. There's a timer on this thing now. I'm 30. Like this is now, like, but then at 20, having never done that before, it was like, you know, I would look down and he's still up there like, don't worry, we got this boss. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, we, we, we did the thing. And then, um, and then we were broken up about two months later, and it was her uh, dumping me because uh, I was doing too much stand up. I was going on the road, and uh, she said, "You got to make a choice: me or stand up." And I went, "Well, that's easy, <laughs> stand up." So uh, yeah, that's why that uh, relationship never worked out. Now, I have to ask you a personal question that I yeah. don't know. Okay. Uh, that for I would say I'm average size, but I'm not average size. So no, I, you're I a tall. You're I don't no, you're a big. Myself. You're a tall. You're 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 a tall Jew, Barry. I'm a tall Jew. <laughs> so for little people, okay, mm-hmm. little people, men. Now the natural thing would be to assume that every part of their anatomy is the same size. Yeah. I would say that uh, my uh, my uh, tack uh, that my bits and pieces, uh, their average size. They're not they're not big. They're not small. They're just kind of like all right. But on me, it looks fucking huge. Got it. Okay. <laughs> it look, it. Now it, so it, like my penis on you, you look huge. Oh, massive! That's but you fair. put my dick on Shaq, and you would point and laugh at him. God, what about women? Going, going back to your other question, is that pussy tight? Uh, I never said that. <laughs> uh, it, it's yeah, it, it it it's fine. I've never, uh, I've had, I, I've I've had sex with both little people and average sized women, and there isn't a dramatic difference. There's nothing that that makes you go like, oh God, this is something brand new. No, it's it's now one of the things like about you that I love so much, and I yeah. will never forget the first time I heard you say it. I asked you, why do you think so many average size women want to be mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. as a little person? Yep, I know, I know the answer because I'm safe, Barry. <laughs> I'm safe. And you are safe, and people feel safe, and that's fine. They don't, yeah. so they don't think anything's gonna happen. No, because when you, because when women go out with an average sized guy, and I'm talking average sized women, there's always that knowledge in the back of their mind that if this guy wants to do something, there's gonna be a struggle, but more than likely he will get his way. And you, they can never, they can get That's away. That's never do, gonna happen. Never gonna happen. You can run faster than me. <laughs> you can get on. You, 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 you can jump on a on a shelf like a like a mouse running across the ground. You can leap on a a high shelf. I'm not gonna do anything. You 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 can do the simple maneuver of just extending your arm to full length and placing it on my forehead, and I can't get to you. So with me, women are safe. Well, the no- first time I asked you, like, why? What, what is it about? You said every woman has a bucket list. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just never forget that. Yeah. I said, I, I always pressed you. And like, just go a little bit further. Can you tell me something? Anything I should know? He says, yeah. And he says to me, he says, Barry, um, when you uh, choose to have sex from uh, behind a woman, right. um, you... Um, are on your knees. <laughs> I'm standing. I am. It's great. It uh, it's it's certainly not a bad thing. And uh yeah, the same way men never just want to sleep with brunettes their entire life or blondes their entire life or any race their entire life. Uh women want variety as well. And uh I'm That's my only hope. Yeah, right? And every remember those little variety packs of cereal? Yes. Every every variety pack, and they would have little, they have about four or five mini boxes of cereal in these variety, like one serving. So you got five days of cereal, all of all of all of different cereals. Every pack, every pack, every variety pack had raisin bran. It had cornflakes. 
It had Cheerios and, uh, and and maybe some sort of other sort of maybe shredded wheat. But then there would be a pack of corn pops or smacks or uh, uh, or Golden Crisp or, uh, or or Fruity Pebbles. There's the one that's not like all the other ones. Which was always the first box to get eaten. You went right for the you went right for the corn pops because that's not the raisin brand. That's not the corn flakes. That's not the all brand. The Cheerios. The the bland stuff. This is something exciting. This is something different. I'm something exciting. I'm something different. I'm the corn pops of people. Yes, yes, you are. <laughs> All right, so you decide you want to start doing comedy. Mm-hmm. You show up at a Mencia show. Carlos Mencia, yeah. And you have that happen, and he brings you on stage, which is unbelievable. The guy, who you've never done stand-up, and the guy takes you aside and says, listen, if you can figure out how to do stand-up, I'll have you open for me. Yeah. And so you start doing the open mic nights, getting yourself ready. Mm-hmm. He puts you on the tour, and how does it go? Amazing. It was great. And you've been it. on stage how many times before you did the first tour date? Uh, with with Mencia? Yes. Maybe six. Six times on stage. Six or seven. And yeah. you're touring with a national headliner. Yeah. The eighth time I was on stage was at the Fox Theater in Bakersfield, which is about 1,200 seats. And that was the eighth time on stage. <laughs> I assure you, everybody, I have never heard of anything like this in my entire <laughs> life normally there is a trajectory sure. as a stand-up whenever some stand-up says to me what do i have to do to get to the next level i'll say call me in 10 years because it's a 10-year yeah, plan absolutely and when people ask me when I, when young comics at, at, ask me I, how, how do i get to your level what what did you do and i go well mine wasn't typical mine wasn't your average t- average uh trajectory um you go to your dad and mom and say mom dad i'm quitting usc to do stand-up what do they say no you're not (laughs) (laughs) which by which by the way is exactly what they should say i'm not going to be one of those people that's like my mom and dad didn't support my decisions no i would hope that if a child came to their parents when i i had a year to go barry i had a year to go before having my degree. Do you ever think of going back for you? Never. Do you ever I, think of getting it remotely? No, never. I hated school. I always did it just like I always knew when I was in a class and I knew that this wasn't a skill or something that I would have to use later, I, I paid horrible attention. If I got good grades, it was literally just to please my parents and that, and that was all just so they would not be upset with me and that would be one less problem in my life. Um, so, yeah, when I when I could get out of school, I, I was like, great, done. I, I was going to be a – I was wanting to – before I wanted to be a comic, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And I knew that getting an A in neuroscience isn't necessary to be a successful sports broadcaster. So I was okay with, you know – not getting good grades there and once i had this opportunity i i knew the second i was on stage barry i i knew that that was what i wanted to do and that what that's what i was going to do with the rest of my life so when they said when my parents said no you're not dropping out i said i'm not asking permission i'm doing it and you guys just have to know that and accept that and understand you're not going to be writing checks to USC anymore. And I, I I remember my family went, my mom and dad went as far as saying, they're saying, if you do this, if you do stand-up comedy, and if you don't go back to school and don't get your degree, you're out of the will. <laughs> and they said that, and, and my, my family does okay, so that's a big thing. So when you did the show for mm-hmm. Showtime in Santa Barbara and they were in the crowd... yeah. And you look them in the eye. Yeah. Have you ever had that Godfather moment with your mom and dad? No. Never. You never no. sat down and said, "Hey, you told no. me not to quit school." No, never. Because it because they did the right thing. They absolutely did the right thing. Their their mindset was correct. 
God. Really, really, you're, you're going to drop out of one of the most prestigious y- universities in the country to go into the ever so stable world of stand up comedy? No, they they did the absolute right thing. But but when they told me if you don't if you don't go back to school, you're out you're out of the will. My response was, okay, that's fine. I'll make my own way being a stand up comic. So Mencia mm-hmm. puts you on his television show. Yeah. The first time you're ever doing a television show and mm-hmm. going in front of the cameras, mm-hmm. tell us about that experience, something you've never done before, and how did you handle it and what happened? I did a lot of theater and stuff in high school and improv comedy and... A little Raisin in the Sun? Yeah. Things of that nature. So it wasn't entirely new. I made some student films and stuff when I was at USC. So when he put me in front of the camera, I mean, I felt a lot of pressure because I, I looked around and before if you if you messed up a take, you you and your friends would kinda laugh about it and then you would just go again. Here you mess up a take, every everyone, fifty people have to do their job again. They they're they're they set up again or and that was in my mind. But um, the first couple bits we did were just man on the street stuff, so I was I, w- I would just be me. I would just act like myself. I w- I, w- I wasn't playing a character, I wasn't playing uh, a part. I I was just playing me, and that that was very helpful because that got me used to being on camera and on set and being in front of all these people uh, without having to go too extreme. So. Um, it, it was a wonderful opportunity, and uh, I, I had a lot of fun, a lot, a lot of fun on that show. And true to anything that happens in the world, you go on, you do a great job, you do multiple shows. Mm-hmm. You go on, you don't do a great job, you do one show. Yeah, you did multiple shows. Yeah, you had never done it before, and here you are. He keeps booking you again and again, and putting you on more and more tours. Yeah, well, um, when he. When he first put me on the show, I was I wasn't even his opener yet. I was a I was a fan from the audience, <laughs> so like there was no intention to bring me back. But then the response that that bit got and that my my button my joke, where it was uh, it was an examination of the sign that you see on the five freeway driving to San Diego that says caution and has people running across the street which obviously are Mexicans since you're close to the border but they don't but they don't look like the Mexicans that you know they don't, they don't look like Mexicans uh that's that's what the bit is and he said well there's a there's a baby on that there there's like a kid Wh- who's that kid supposed to be Everyone's like, uh, could be a white kid. It's like, no, it's not a white kid. Like, who's that kid supposed to be? And he said, could it be a midget? And I walked out on camera and struck the pose that the that that the kid had, and it got such a big laugh when it aired, and uh, you know, for the studio audience that they thought, ooh, we should have him back again. We should do something. And uh, then and then they made me, um, and then Mencia made me actually a monologue writer on season two and uh then they had a rule in 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 the writer's room where it was posted on the wall it said brad isn't in it until the last minute and what that means is that every writer when they would pitch sketches would have it end with me doing something with me doing a joke a button a, a, a something to make the sketch to have a big punch in the end and then and then and then we're out and then they finally had to call the writers together and say, "Can you write some shit without Brad in it? Can you can can you do stuff without him?" So Brad isn't in it until the last minute was on the wall, so people would go like, "All right, write write a funny sketch without Brad, and then maybe we'll throw him in every now and then." So yeah, so they they kept putting me in stuff. Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. 
He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.